Good morning. All right, welcome to Park Church. We are glad that you are here on this beautiful Sunday morning, Parkapalooza Day. Uh, we only have really two of these kind of big festivals a year, and you made it for this one. So we're glad to see you. We are uh, genuinely happy that you are here in this place, and we believe that God is too. Our hope for you this morning, whether you are someone who is near to God or someone who is far to God or you don't even know where you are, our hope for you this Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, is that you would draw a little bit closer to God this morning, that God would draw you a little bit closer. And maybe you came in this morning wanting exactly that. And our hope is that you would, you would be drawn closer to God, that he would actually speak to you in some way that would make a difference in your life, make a difference in your faith, and in some way change um, change you and change your world. And that's what, that's what our hope is. We're just glad to see you, though, and glad that God has put you here uh, with that potential. All right? So welcome. We're glad you're here. My name is Matt. I am one of the pastors here on staff. If you are new, um, we're especially glad to see you this morning. Um, I want to start this morning by talking about an experience that's actually pretty common. And as I'm talking about it, I see a baby being wheeled in the room, and it's, it's just about that right there. Um, for a lot of us who are parents here in this room, do you remember that feeling that you had when you had to go from being in the hospital to going home for the first time with that first baby? Do you remember what that was like? A little scary, right? Like, I remember being in the hospital and um, with our first son, his name's Zeke, he's like almost 10 now. Um, my wife had a C-section, so we were there for like four or five days, and we were kind of like living it up in the hospital, right? You have people who are coming who are bringing you food. It might not be good food, but it's food, right? If you need coffee, there's like coffee there. If you want free jello and vanilla ice cream, it's in the little pantry thing, right? Um, it's kind of nice, right, when like when the baby's first born, if it needs a new diaper, like they'll come and change the diaper for the baby, right? Um, if you had a boy and you got the thing done with the thing and the ointment, right, you know, there's a nurse that comes and kind of does that for you. They take care of it. If you're having trouble feeding women, you know about the feeding thing. I just kind of watched and was like, bah, I don't understand what's happening, but they do, and that's great, right? In the hospital, it kind of works. But the biggest gift of being in the hospital, right, is at night. Because you, you have the opportunity, at least we did, have the opportunity to put that little bundle of joy that you've been carrying for nine and a half months and just get it the heck out of your presence and put it in the nursery so that you don't have to deal with it and someone else deals with it, right? The nurse deals with it. And in the hospital, it seems like everything kind of works and it works out fine. Uh, and then you have that moment where someone comes to you and says, so, it's time to go. And it's like, oh, is it really time to go? Do we really have to? Because, like, I remember when we first came home with Zeke, I thought to myself, I can't believe they're allowing me to bring this thing home, right? Like, my wife is a baby professional. She was born to, like, take care of babies, but I am the total opposite of that. And I'm like, I can't believe I have the freedom to take this baby home. I feel like you should need a license to have a baby, right? You need a license to drive a car. You need a license to get married. You need a license to fish, but you don't need a license to have a baby? Like, you should have to go through, like, a series of rigorous tests, training courses, you know, if you want to hear more about my extreme population engineering uh, ideas, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Um, just kidding, I don't actually think that. But uh, it's crazy, right? And so we bring this baby home and I'm like, okay, 
She's good with this. I'm not. I don't really know what's happening here. First day home. First night home, right? Things are, things are going okay. Things are going okay. But then that first night comes. That first night comes, and this child, who we think slept really well throughout the entire time, this child did not feel like sleeping on that first night at all. The entire night, awake, awake, crying, and we, and we don't know what to do. He can't talk yet, obviously. He's like five days old. And we're like, what do we do? He's not going to sleep. And we're like, is there a number we can call to have someone come and wheel the bassinet down into a nursery somewhere, right? Can we pick up the phone and say, hey, we need help with this, right? We can't do that, right? When you have a baby and you bring it home, it, when you bring he or she home from the hospital, it's your baby. It's yours to figure out. No one's going to figure it out for you. The nurse isn't coming home. The doctor isn't going to come home, right? There's going to be no attendant coming home bringing you uh, cups of water and ice and coffee. It is on you to work out once you get home. It turned out that first night, we figured it out. It turned out it was, you know, he was born July 11th, 7-11, free Slurpee Day for the rest of his life. Um, we brought him home, what, the 15th, 16th or something like that. In the middle of July, it was hot out. And I'm someone who likes an air conditioning more than anyone else. And the air conditioning was pumping in our bedroom. And on that first night, poor little Zeke, he's freezing the entire night. And we didn't know that because we were new parents. And we didn't have someone to tell us that that was what was happening. We had to figure that out on our own. We had to work that out. And the thing is, the same thing is true of faith. The very same thing is true of however you want to put it, your relationship with God, your following Jesus, however you want to put it, that's yours to work out. No one is going to work it out for you, right? There's no nurse coming in the middle of the night to put a diaper on your faith. That doesn't happen. The problem is, though, for a lot of us, we don't quite learn that until maybe it's too late. Because maybe this is the scenario. You grew up in a home um, where your parents were Christians. You went to this church, and you kind of, um, you didn't really quite have a faith of your own. It was kind of their faith. And you were a part of it. Maybe you went to the youth group, but you were there every Sunday. And you kind of grew up, and it was really kind of your parents' faith more than it was yours. But then one day, you went to college, and your professor said something that didn't click for you or you heard something, or something hard happened in your life, and all of a sudden the faith that you had thought was there all your life, it just wasn't there for you at the time when you most needed it. And it's because it wasn't yours, it was, it was your parents' faith. Or maybe for you, you're someone who comes to a church like this church, and you're surrounded by people who have strong faith, and who um, you do know have this deep faith that's their own. Maybe you're friends with them, maybe you're in a community group with them. And for a long time you've come, but you've never quite like that faith was yours, like it became yours. And so when life gets hard for you, bless you, when life gets hard for you, that faith that you want to be there to count it, it's not there because your friend's not there or your community group isn't there or whatever it is. Or maybe you're someone who comes to a church like this and you hear the messages, whoever's preaching up here, and you're inspired or you're challenged or you're encouraged you're convicted in some sense, or maybe, maybe you listen to other people's messages on YouTube or on podcasts or whatever it is, or maybe you're someone who reads a lot of Christian books and, you know, the woman author who you love or the man author who you love tells you to do this and tells, you, and tells her story and it's impacting you and it's amazing, right? But all of a sudden, life gets hard and you realize 
it's not my faith. It's the faith of the pastor, the preacher. It's, it's the faith of the person on YouTube or the, the faith of the person on the podcast or it's the faith of the author or whatever it is. It's not, it's not my faith. It's, it's more like a derivative faith, um, a vicarious faith, kind of like secondhand faith. Like, you know what secondhand smoke is, right? Firsthand smoke, the person in the house smokes, they definitely get the, like, lung stuff, right? But the secondhand smoke person, they catch it too, right? And secondhand smoke can negatively impact your life. Obviously, you know that. The problem is, secondhand faith isn't a thing. We think it is, but it's not actually a thing. What we're, what we're looking for is firsthand faith. And, you know, being in that condition where there is a secondhand faith from your, from your family growing up or from your friends at church or from the pastor or the author, whatever it is, that's all good stuff. We want that. We want you and your kids to grow up in homes where their parents know Jesus and follow him, right? And um, we want you to be part of a church where you don't even have to have faith to be a real integral, central part of this community, right? Paul talked about that in the welcome. We want that for you. Um, We want you to be inspired, to be challenged, to be encouraged, to read other books, um, to get built up like that. We want that. But the problem is that stuff's only good as far as it goes. And it doesn't go very far. You know what I mean? What we're after is firsthand faith here. It has to be yours and no one else's. And for some of you this morning, I imagine you come in here and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you've lived in a Christian home or you've been around Christians, you've been around churches for all your life, but it's never quite hit you. And maybe this is your morning to make that transition from secondhand to firsthand faith. Or maybe you come in this morning and you're someone who is... Um, You don't know anything about this. You're so far from God. You're so far from faith. You don't even know if you could believe that. Um, You would love just a sniff of that firsthand faith. Maybe today is your day for that. Or maybe you're someone in here who does have a firsthand faith, but it is one that has just grown stagnant. It's, it's, It started to go nowhere. Maybe this is your day um, to pick up some tools to learn how to grow that firsthand faith. Because the bottom line is, that's what we need. If we're going to have a faith and going to live a life that not only survives, but actually thrives in the midst of a challenging world. And that's what our series is called. It's called Need to Know. We're looking at um, a letter that a man named Paul wrote to a group of Jesus followers gathered in a town called Philippi in the first century in the middle of Greece. A group of people probably smaller than who's gathered here. But he wrote to them in order to encourage them, to challenge them, to tell them what they need to know to have the kind of faith that can survive and thrive in the midst of the challenging world that they faced. And uh, so this morning, the need to know that we need to know, it's kind of, um, is it a syllogism? Is that what it is? The faith that we need to know to have the faith that we need to know, blah, 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 is we need to know our faith. That's our need to know this morning. The thing that we need to know is our faith. And so we're going to look, to make it simple, we're going to look at just one sentence that Paul wrote uh, in chapter 2, kind of right in the middle of his letter. One sentence, it covers two different verses, and it really tells us what we need to know to know our faith. And here's here's how Paul starts it. He starts it by saying, as soon as that does its thing, he starts it by saying, therefore, my beloved... And my beloved, this is a term of endearment. He, um, it could be translated, my dear friends. Paul had visited this community, this group of people, a number of times. He knew them personally. He loved them personally. He cared about them so much. He wanted them to succeed in the world, right? But he says, therefore, my beloved. And the therefore there connects everything that he just said with what he's about to say. 
And if you're visiting for the first time this morning, if you haven't been here for the last few weeks, you're going to miss out on some of the benefit of what we talked about over the last few weeks. But that therefore, here's what it captures in a nutshell. Right before this, Paul talked about for us to have a faith that can uh, survive and thrive, we need to rid ourselves of self-centeredness, to take ourselves out of the center and instead to put Christ at the center. And when we put Christ at the center, what that means is that we take on his mind, we take on his attitude, his disposition, his approach to the world. That's what we're called to take on, to have that kind of faith. And then Paul details for us uh, what that actually looks like. He, he tells this kind of poem of Jesus' life. And what it looks like in a nutshell is um, that Jesus, who was God in person, all the power of the creator of the universe in person, Jesus, God in person, doesn't use that power for himself, but he empties himself and he uses that power to serve others. And that's what it looks like to have the mind, the attitude, the approach of Christ, to use your power to serve others. And because of that, God raised him up from the dead, and he enthroned him, and now this Jesus is in charge of the world. That's kind of um, the summary of what's in the therefore. And then Paul continues. He says, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence. Right? So Paul is stuck in prison at this time. Paul's in prison, he's writing a letter, and he doesn't know, he wants to get out of prison and go see them again, but he doesn't know if he's going to be able to. He might be stuck there in prison, um, and he might die there, right? He might get executed. I mean, he might die before this letter even reaches the Philippians. And what he's saying here is, guys, you have done a great job. Every time I'm with you, you've done a great job listening to me. Um, you listen to what I say, you do what I tell you is true about Jesus. Like, you are the community that actually goes and does that. Great job. That's going to be even more important now in my absence, because I might never get to you again. What he's kind of saying here, right, is um, I'm sending you home from the hospital. I'm not going to be with you any longer, right? I can't come and change the diaper of your faith at 2 in the morning anymore. Um, you guys are on your own. And that's exactly what he says. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I can't be the nurse anymore who comes at two in the morning. You guys are big boys and girls now. Um, this is on you to figure out. You're going home with the baby. I'm stuck here in prison. That's what Paul's getting at when he says, work out your own salvation. Now, when he says work out, it's important uh, to note a few things about that. He doesn't mean work on your salvation or work at it or um, work towards it or work for it or work to earn it. He doesn't mean any of those things because the Philippians knew by then that you can't work at your salvation. You can't work on your salvation. You can't work for, you can't work towards your salvation. Because your salvation, listen, is a gift that is given to you by God, made effective, accomplished through Jesus' death on the cross, completely independent of your participation. Right? That's what salvation is. Salvation is a gift that you can't work on, you can't work for it, you can't work towards it, you can't work at it. The whole center, center of the Christian message is that uh, God sent his son Jesus into this world to suffer and to die for you without your participation, without you saying, yeah, go ahead and do it. He just did it. That's what the center of the Christian message is all about. And so you can't work for it. You can't work to earn it. And what it means is also you can't work to unearn it. That's not what this um, is about here. 
What Paul is saying when he says work out your salvation, he means work out what your salvation means. Work that out in your life. As if um, someone's giving you a plan and you have to work out the plan, right? You have to carry out the plan. Paul is saying carry out your salvation in every aspect of your life. Work it out. Figure out how how it applies to each and every area of your life. That's what Paul's instructing uh, the Philippians to here. To live out what Christ has done. And so when Paul talks about salvation then, he doesn't just mean the future salvation, as in like when you die rather than going to hell. Like he does mean that also, but he doesn't just mean that. He also doesn't just mean the past salvation that, you know, Jesus accomplished for you on the cross. He doesn't just mean that. Salvation for Paul is something that is present. It is a present lived reality. To live salvation is to live as someone who has that hope in future salvation and who has that um, certainty of past salvation. That's what it means to live salvation. It's something, it's, it's not something just that we receive. Salvation is something that we do. And I don't know if you ever think about salvation like that. We do salvation. We don't just receive it. And so we have to learn how to work it out, to see what this looks like in every area of our lives. And again, to emphasize, it's your own. It can't be anyone else's. No one else is going to work it out for you. It can't be the faith of your parents. It can't be the faith of your friends, the faith of your church or your pastor or the author who you like. All those things are good, but none of that is your salvation. None of that's going to help you in the middle of the night when it's hard and you're tired and things aren't working right, when it's dark, right? It's on you, your own. A few weeks ago, we talked about how the only person whose behavior you can ever actually change is your own. The same is true with faith. The only person whose faith you could ever work on is your own. It's on you to work that out. And Paul tells us how to do it. He says, do it with fear and trembling. Now, this phrase, fear and trembling, this is one that you might have heard from, like, culture. Um, If you're, you know, how many huge fans of, you know, 19th century northern philosophy do we have here, right? Few, right? There's a famous uh, philosopher theologian named Soren Kierkegaard, right? You probably heard of that. Um, I had a professor who used to pronounce it Kierkegaard, and I had this image of this, like, gourd with Soren Kierkegaard's hair on it. I wanted to make a cartoon of it, but it didn't work out. Um, Anyway, he wrote a very famous book called Fear and Trembling. And it's basically the story, um, or his interpretation of the story of Abraham having to sacrifice Isaac, if you know what that is. Um, If not, what that book's about, though, is, uh, is the existential anxiety. He was an existentialist. The existential anxiety that you face when you realize that the life you live is before the living God who created the heavens and the earth and hung the moon and the stars, right? When you realize that your life is lived before a God that big, it ought to cause you some anxiety, right? Some fear and trembling. And that's, that's, that's kind of what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about fear as in being afraid. Like, you know, Paul's not telling the Philippians to be afraid of God. What he's saying is work out your faith with a sort of awe, a sort of reverence, a sort of humility, a, a seriousness that's fitting of a God who not only created the universe and the sun and the stars, but a God who is actually with you in this moment. And that's exactly where he goes next. He says, for it is God who is at work in you. 
enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who is at work in you. Working out your, your salvation with fear and trembling um, is working it out under the realization that God is actually in this place. That God speaks to this. That God goes in here. That God actually interrupts our lives to make himself known to us, to speak with us, um, to be at work in us. And that it actually brings him pleasure to do that to transform our hearts, to transform our minds, to actually want what God wants and to want to do what God wants us to do. It brings God pleasure to do that. That ought to cause us awe, reverence, humility. Not because you're afraid of God, but because you are in awe of the grandeur of the thing, right? The bigness of the thing. Is bigness a word? Bigicity. Because of the bigness of the thing, right? Have you, ever, have you ever stood in awe of the grandeur of something? Like, I bet, I bet you have in some, in some way, shape, or form, right? Um, I remember when I was a teenager, I think I was in my eighth grade summer going into freshman year of high school. Uh, my parents and I took a trip out west. It was a two-week trip, and we went to the Grand Canyon. And I remember the experience of going to the Grand Canyon and, like, looking, just looking at this just unbelievable, unspeakable beauty of this thing and being and just being in awe of it like not being able to comprehend how this thing could exist on our planet and we can go to it and see it and throw coins into it <laughs> i actually remember um the awe uh, the fear and trembling of the grand canyon lasted about 10 minutes because for a 14 year old after 10 minutes you're just looking at a hole in the ground right <laughs> And it was my eighth grade summer. There was a girl back at home, Caitlin Fox, who I had a crush on, and I wanted to get home to Caitlin Fox. But for the ordinary person, the Grand Canyon is an awe-inspiring thing, right? Not for the teenage boy, but for an ordinary person, right? I, I mean, just this past Tuesday night, I was taking the recycling out. Not an awe-inspiring moment, right? But um, this was the night where all that lightning was happening. Do you remember that? And it was just wild. And the storm had passed, but you could see it in the distance. And I stood there on my driveway, just looking northwest, I don't know, looking somewhere um, into the clouds and just seeing lightning flash after lightning flash. And it was like nothing I had never ever seen before. Like, um, it looked like an alien invasion, what I imagine that looks like. It was just unbelievable. And in that moment, I was struck by the bigness by the grandeur of this world that God has created and in some senses just holds in his hands like it's, like it's a drop in the bucket. And God holds it and God put that lightning in the sky and lights it up and it was just amazing. I don't know if you've experienced a grandeur like that before, that kind of awe in front of something huge. You know, we also experience this kind of awe, this kind of fear and trembling um, when we meet someone who just, who just means that much to you, Right? Like when you meet the person who has just made such an impact in your life without ever having met them, right? Have you ever had that experience before? Like met some author, met some speaker, met some person who just has made a huge impact on your life and they never even knew it, right? I remember um, there's this singer-songwriter who I love and his lyrics for me like throughout my teenage years, into my 20s and even now still, I mean his lyrics just impact me often. 
And when I finally got to meet him, I mean, I wasn't in awe because he was a celebrity. I could tell you his name right now and no one would know who he is, right? But I was in awe because of what this man's words have meant to me. I don't know if you've had that kind of experience of awe. For some of us, sometimes, right? This happens to me occasionally. I'll look at my three boys. I'll look at them playing. I'll look at them doing their thing or whatever. Um, Not yesterday when Eli was punching Zeke in the back repeatedly as hard as he could, right? But sometimes you look at them and you look at them play. Like you look at them and I'm just in awe. Like, I'm in awe of how beautiful they are. I'm in awe of how um, amazing they are. I'm in awe that God would actually gift me the privilege of raising these kids. Uh, It's just, it's an awe-inspiring thing to raise children sometimes. I mean, don't get me wrong. Most of the time, you're in pain from the Lego you stepped on, right? (laughs) But once in a while, that awe comes through. I remember for me, uh, I had one moment of fear and trembling in this room. It was December 21st, 2014. It was a long time ago. It was the very first Sunday we ever met here. And for me, who had been around for a long time, we, before we were part church, we were around for a long time as a different organization, and we hopped from place to place to place, and it was hard, and it was long, and it was painful. We had searched for a space to meet forever. And for me, getting into this space, it was a lot of work and it was, you know, tiring and whatnot. And I remember that first morning we met here, uh, December 21st, I sat in the back seat back there. I don't know who's sitting back there now, but I sat in that back seat back there before anyone else got here. And I looked at, the room was kind of dark because the lights weren't on yet. And I started to cry in the back seat. Not because the space is beautiful, not because of the work that was put into it, not because of anything like that but because I knew that God had destined this community of Jesus followers to be in this place. And in this room, God would do amazing things. God would call people to faith who didn't have faith before. God would welcome people in. God would literally save lives through what would happen in this room. And I remember I sat in the back corner of that room and thought, this is a holy place. This is a place for me of fear and trembling. This is a place that I'm going to respect differently. And I, I belabor this point a little bit because I want you to stop and think for a moment. Have you, have you ever considered that it is God who is at work in you? That the creator of the universe, the one who hung the planets, who has your life and my life and all of our lives in his very hands, that God who is the highest of the high has decided to be made small and became a human being, but also has decided to come into history, into your history, and work inside of you, and change your heart, and change your mind, and change your life. Have you ever really considered that? That this God was not content to use his power for himself, but he used his power, he poured himself out, he emptied himself for you. That God is at work in you, and he finds pleasure in doing that in you. That's awesome. That is awe-filled, right? If there's anything that causes fear and trembling, that's it. And the question that I want to ask you is, do you approach your faith with that level of awe? Do you approach your faith with that sort of reverence? Do you take your own faith that seriously? Seriously as is fitting for the God of the universe coming down to work in you. 
I mean, how many of us, how many of us do? Treat it with the same level of awe and reverence. I want to ask you, have you yet heard that call to make your faith your own? No more secondhand faith, but firsthand faith. Have you heard that call to have it for yourself, to work on it for yourself? Or are you still waiting for the nurse to come with the diaper for your faith, right? Are you still banking on that secondhand faith? Maybe today is your day, and this is the day you'll look back on, and this passage is the passage you'll look back on and say, that was the day I realized I need to stop relying on someone else's faith, and I need to work on it myself. Because God is actually at work in me, and it's his pleasure to work on it in me. So I'm going to work on it too with that level of seriousness. Maybe today is your day to start that work. And so what do you do to work it out? Remember, um, I can tell you what to do, but I can't do it for you. Only you can do it for yourself, right? No one can study for the test for you. No one can work out for the marathon so you could run the marathon, right? That doesn't exist. Only you can. Same goes for faith. So what do you do? I think the best way to approach the answer to this question is actually just to look at what we've talked about so far in Philippians, to see where Paul um, has come already. And if, if we work backwards, right, what we talked about last week is you need to know your Lord. You need to know Jesus. That's where this all starts. And I want to kind of break that into two different sections. We have to know Jesus personally, but we have to know about Jesus. And you can kind of tell the difference, right? Um, like, you're not going to be able to have the same mind of Christ, to have the same approach to Christ, if you don't know anything about what Jesus did or said, right? Your WWJD bracelet's not going to help you if you don't know what Jesus did, right? So you have to learn about Jesus. And the best way to learn about Jesus is to take a Bible home with you or take a Bible off your shelf, whatever it is, and actually open it to Matthew and to Mark and to Luke and to John and just read what's written there about Jesus. Learn those stories. Learn what Jesus says. Um, take note of what he does and, and who he does it to and what he says and who he says it to, right? Um, we are people, and I am just as guilty as this of, of anyone. I know many more Simpsons quotes and Office quotes and the Big Lebowski quotes uh, than I do actual words from the Bible. That's not treating my faith with uh, fear and trembling, right? We should know the stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the books that talk about Jesus' life. We should know them better than we know Harry Potter, right? Better than we know what happens in Lord of the Rings, right? Those are great books also to read and to learn. Like, no problems there. But we need to know about Jesus. And also, and I never really do this. I'm going to do it this morning, though. Read other books about Jesus. There are a zillion great books. There's a lot of bad books out there too, but read other stuff about Jesus, right? Um, listen to podcasts, listen to messages, to sermons, to lectures. Learn about Jesus. It's on every Jesus follower to do that. Um, I usually don't do this. I don't do book recommendations, but I kind of wanted to give you a few because it's the start of the summer, summer reading, that sort of thing, right? I don't know. Um, so that first one up there, it's in green because this is sort of like green means go, right? It's kind of a little easier, it's kind of a little more, you know, this is beach reading. You can read it while distracted. It's called The Jesus I Never Knew by Philip Yancey. It's not perfect. It's a pretty good book about the Jesus you might have never have known. Like, you should read that. Um, the second one, it's in yellow because it's a little more like, you got to slow down here. You got to kind of pay attention. Um, it's actually two books, Simply Jesus and How God 
became king by um, N.T. Wright. He's a British New Testament scholar. Um, you could read these. They're not beach reads. Maybe they're hammock reads, right? I don't know. Um, and then the third one down there is yet, like, yet stop. Yet to stop what you're doing. You know, close the door. Actually, pay attention to this one. Uh, it's by a guy named Richard Bauckham, also a British New Testament scholar. Um, it's called Jesus: A Very Short Introduction, and it is a very short introduction. It's about 110 pages, but it is the most. It's not the most difficult book, but um, it's one you actually have to stop and pay attention to. There's a lot of bad books out there. I could have given you those too. These are some good ones that I've read that I've gotten a lot out of. Um, you have to learn about Jesus, right? It's not enough. Uh, you know, like you have to learn about him. But you also have to know Jesus personally, right? You have to know him personally. Um, like you know your kids, right? Like you know about your kids. You know what they like and you know um, their middle name, maybe. Um, and you know, you know, how they like their peanut butter and jelly, who gets crust cut off and who doesn't. I was supposed to give her a signal when it was too cold in here. And I, I'm, I'm giving her the signal. Um, you have to know not just about Jesus, but you have to know Jesus personally. And, um, I mean, the way to get there, and this is just, it's just so obvious and so simple. Um, the first one I'll say is just prayer. For the person who wants to follow Jesus, who wants to work out their faith with fear and trembling, developing um, a pattern, a practice of talking to Jesus, to talking to God regularly and listening to him, is just absolutely a part of a part of what this is, right? Um, whether you do it in the morning and one time all by yourself or you spread it throughout the day, whatever it looks like, um, you have to develop that practice of actually talking to God and listening. And then the other thing I'll say about this is you have to develop the practice um, of reading the Bible, of reading the Gospels, not, not just to learn about, but to learn from. And you know the difference there, right? When you learn about Jesus, you learn what he did, and you learn what he said, and you learn where he lived, and all that, and that's great. We have to know that. But to learn from Jesus is to hear what he said, to look at what he did, and actually allow it to teach you. Actually allow it to change what you do and how you live. That's the difference between learning about and learning from. Um, Jesus said, you know, like, those of you who hear my words and actually do them, Right? Put them into practice. That's what, that's, what we're, that's what we're shooting for here. That's what it's all about. You have to learn um, to read that, not just about Jesus, but to learn from Jesus. And as we come to learn about Jesus and come to learn him personally, then we're in a position to do what we talked about two weeks ago, which is taking ourselves out of the center and put Jesus there instead. To learn to put on that mind of Christ that actually serves people in the world. And um, this is what it means to work out your salvation, right? Work it out in every area of your life. And just thinking about the places you spend the most time in life, right? At work. How do you work out your salvation there? Um, how do you lead your team in a way where you don't get served, but they get served, right? Um, maybe it requires a little more giving of you or being a little more flexible, right? Um, maybe working out your salvation at work means bringing bringing someone out to lunch who you know is having a hard time, right? It, it can mean a lot of things. Where else do we spend our time? We spend our time at home, right? How do you work out your salvation at home with your husband, with your wife, with your kids, with, you know, your parents, whoever you live with? Um, working out your salvation, we might think of it as this, like, holy thing that's just between me and God. And the fact is, for Paul, it's not. 
It is in the very real relationships in your life. There's nothing more um, telling about your faith than how you treat the people closest to you, right? Uh, Learn to work out that sort of um, unself-centeredness, that selflessness at home. And then, you know, wherever else you spend your time, at your kids' baseball games with, with your neighbors, right? How do you work out your salvation in those places? When you're at the store buying stuff, how do you work out your salvation there? How do you work it out in your wallet and what you spend your money on? When you're by yourself plopped on your couch, a lot of us are there. How do we work out our salvation in those places when no one sees you but God? And then we go all the way back to the first week. And that first week of this series, this is where kind of Paul kind of starts the letter because he's in prison, right? Think about the things, um, the challenges that you face, the things in life that you wish weren't there, the situations that make you feel like a prisoner, perhaps, the things you suffer with. Remember, Paul faced his suffering, real suffering, not sure if he would ever get out of prison, not sure when he would die, right, when he would be killed. But he faced it with confidence and with faith and with joy because he had learned to work out his salvation in every area of his life, even in the prison cell in his uncertain future, in his suffering. And so the question I want to ask is, what does your salvation say to the worst things in your life? What does your salvation say to the illness that's so hard on you and your family? What does um, faith say to the grief that you feel because of that loss? What does salvation say to the anxiety that you live with because you don't have a crystal ball? Have you worked out your salvation even into those areas of life? Because the thing is, with all of these, when we do this, when we take it upon ourselves to make our faith, not secondhand faith, but firsthand faith, and we take it upon ourselves to work it out for ourselves, what we find is that it's actually God who's been at work in us all the time. And God works in us to take what we do to take what we offer, to take our minds, to take our hearts, and to turn them and change them um, and make them things that are for him and for his good pleasure. What we find when we take the step to work out our salvation is that God is actually at work in us already. You might remember the, the first promise we kind of started this series with, right? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will. He will bring it to completion. And so when you take steps of faith to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, God will see it through with you and in you. But the thing is, I can't do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. Your parents aren't going to do it for you. Right? The nurse isn't coming. Only you can. It's yours to do. And maybe for you, now is the time to do it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the way that you continue to work in our lives. That you, God, who is before all things and after all things, creator of all things, bigger than we could imagine, hanging the sun and the moon and the stars, holding the planets in your hands, holding our fate, our destiny, our lives in your hands, You, God, who are so big, have also become small enough to come and work in us, to interrupt our lives. God, we are in awe of that. We are humbled by that. And we are thankful for that. 
We pray, Lord, that you would show yourself to us in such a way that we actually move with fear and trembling, that we are, that we are just in awe before you. We pray, Lord, that for those of us who need to um, take our faith into our own hands, right, to work it out ourselves, God, we pray that you would put that in our hearts to do it, that you would give us the push that we need. Give us that push through one another. Give us that push um, through your word, through scripture. Just give us that push to actually get out and do it. Lord, because what we want is to follow you in a way that changes things in our lives, that changes things in the lives of the world around us so that we can shine like stars. God, we thank you that you love us, that your salvation for us is a gift that we can't earn and we mercifully can't unearn, but we can certainly be thankful and we can sing about it. So let's do that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.